The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop. Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast. Today we are going to talk about a lot of things, but the main thing we're going to focus on is storytelling, the values of storytelling, uh, the heritage behind it, the history behind it, and why it's important for us as houndsmen to be able to tell our stories. To do this, we've got two very good storytellers that are going to be joining us. Of course, we have our in-house storyteller, Steve Fielder, who is a meticulous storyteller. He's entertaining. But especially this week, a special treat for you is Clay Newcomb of Bear Hunting Magazine. Clay owns and operates Bear Hunting Magazine. Uh, He's writing a a publication there, putting a publication there that is the authority on all things related to bear hunting. You can check them out. If you're not taking Bear Hunting Magazine and you're a bear hunter, then as Steve says in the podcast, you need to get with the program because you're really missing out on a high high quality publication. We also want to uh, let you know that March is going to officially be bear hunting month at Houndsman XP. Why? Because we have banquets going on around the country. We've got the Wisconsin bear hunters holding their annual banquet this month. We've got the Michigan Bear Hunters holding their annual banquet this month. We've got the UP Bear Houndsmen who are holding a banquet in the month of March. And we have the American Plot Association Breed Days in Greenville, Tennessee. So there's a lot of rendezvous of bear hunters, gatherings of bear hunters that are going to be getting together, telling their stories. So we're hoping that this primes you up for those banquets and you can tell your story effectively at, at the upcoming conventions, banquets, or events that you're going to, Bear Hunters. We want to celebrate and recognize all of the hard work that goes into putting on these uh, conventions and banquets to keep bear hunting alive and well on the landscape in North America. And what better way to do that than to have Mr. Clay Newcomb on the podcast of Bear Hunting Magazine. Make sure you're going to w hunting supply du supply.com great customer service 
they can fulfill all of your hunting needs to keep those hounds in the woods. If you want to look stylish doing that, make sure that you're going to dusupply.com, find Join the Fight page, and order one of our long sleeve t-shirts. All those proceeds go to support this podcast. We've also still got window decals there. So make sure that you're going to dusupply.com, rounding your orders up of all your hunting equipment with a a stylish Houndsman XP t-shirt and order a window decal. Without any further delay, let's get into this podcast. big on keeping your hunting spots secret which is fine um but uh kind of give us a general region top secret chris i know i know i know (laughs) it's a trend in the outdoor world it's all public property but we have to we have to have to be secret about it you go find your own public land don't come find mine (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly now we we hunted on mules. It's almost the last weekend of squirrel season. So we, we meet myself and two other guys that are, that are really big squirrel hunters. We went down into the Washtenaw National Forest. Oh, there it is. I spilled the beans. Oh, we got to edit that out. Yeah, edit that out. No, down in the Washtenaws. I'll tell you what, buddy, if somebody wants to drive to come hunt in the Ozark or Washtenaw Mountains for squirrel, more power to them. We, uh, <laughs> we love it we really do we we love the i mean we love the mountains we just love mountain hunting so that's why we like it you can go down into the bottoms of southeast arkansas and kill twice as many squirrels maybe three times as many in less time but we just enjoy the the mountain hunting and uh i've got some buddies that they won't walk hunt for squirrels i mean they just they just love to love to hunt them on mules and it's it's an effective way to do it in big country um and uh we we were trying out a new mule this weekend we got a new mule a guy had had this this was a a very good mule that a guy had paid quite a bit of money for that my dog's barking out here that is my squirrel dog test that there you go good. that's good oh go shoot it out the only reason she's barking is she is looking at a squirrel. She does not joy bark in the pen. That's what I like about her. Uh, she doesn't bark at all unless she's looking at one. So anyway, she's looking at one. Yeah. But we, we, uh, this mule did phenomenal. We rode 17 miles. A, a friend of ours gave this mule to me. Uh, he didn't want to sell it. Uh, he could have sold the mule for good money. He He did not want to sell it. He wanted to put it in the hands of somebody that was going to use it. So we picked it up on Wednesday and rode 17 miles on it. And uh, I described her as the as the Lincoln town car with all the extras of the mule world. She's got the uh, bells and whistles and cruise control, automatic windows, all of it. She just smooth riding, easy going, fast when you need her to go fast, slow when you need her to go slow. Just didn't have any trouble with her. A little rusty on getting in the trailer because she hadn't been ridden in five years. That was part of the story I didn't say. 
she hadn't been ridden in five years. Um, so, uh, you know, just to take her out of the pasture and jump on her and ride 17 miles with dogs and shooting, um, you know, it was a pretty big test and she did great. So we had a phenomenal time. Our little, our little trend curve did real good. She's about eight months old and, uh, man, it's fun having a good young dog coming on. This is our first squirrel dog. Uh, so we're pretty new to the squirrel world, but, uh, anyway, we had a great weekend. Well, you know what? We've had a lot of requests for, for some squirrel dog content. We'll probably get into that, but the voice you're hearing on the other end of this, besides my co-host, Steve Fielder, uh, is the, the legendary Clay Newcomb of bear hunting magazine. And, uh, we are so happy to have Clay on here. Uh, Clay is, was, was such a huge supporter of Houndsman XP when we started out. He was unselfishly shared tech uh, tips and, and his setup of, of the things he was using. Uh, Clay, I think I think you're even responsible for us finding uh, Sportsman's Nation. Yeah, I think I think we had just got on with Sportsman's Nation when we connected with you guys, and uh, yeah, I think we I think we introduced you guys to to. Uh, to the nation. Exactly. Yeah. The nation. We'll just refer to it as the nation from now on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Steve, well, you know, Steve how are yeah, you down there? I'm great. Doing great. Little little uh, cobwebs in the old uh, head this morning. Just back off a four-day road trip to Sweet Home, Alabama. Did a little coon hunting up there for three nights. Uh, met some wonderful people up there. I met an entire family up there of hunters that uh, would make a great podcast uh, they got a they got a great hunting camp up there and we went out and uh, uh, terrorized uh, about 9,000 acres of property that they uh, control up there and just had a wonderful wonderful time uh, lots of good hunting the first two nights the last night the coons stayed home well, I think we made a den tree and a slick tree was all we had to show Saturday night. But, uh, mm. no, doing really good. It's good to have my boss on the podcast. Um, as some of you know, I occasionally write an article for Bear Hunting Magazine. And, and Clay's the... Uh, I was trying to figure out who you're talking about. You <laughs> That's right, man. Uh Editor-in-chief. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and uh, no, it's it's a real, uh, real privilege to have you on, Clay. And uh, uh, I'll thank you publicly for the opportunity to write for your great magazine because uh, it really is a good magazine for anybody that enjoys uh, any aspect of bear hunting. And uh, and I do. It's significant. Really is Steve. The legendary bear hound articles. I think we've written thirty of them, uh, and you've written. I don't know if you've written half of them, but you know, in the neighborhood of that, um, they're they're one of our most well received columns that we have, and uh, so that's great. Well, it's really I haven't worked with the coon hounds for so many years, but my dad was a bear hunter, you know, and we the subject was always bear hunting at home. So it it's it truly is a, a privilege to be able to write for that publication. I, I, listeners out there who haven't seen Bear Hunting Magazine, man, you need to get with the program and uh, and uh, give us a little uh, uh, address there where they can subscribe, Clay. Yeah, so. 
if you want to support some little barefoot Ozark children, you can subscribe <laughs> to Bear Hunting Magazine. Uh, you can find us at bear-hunting.com or bearhuntingmagazine.com. And, uh, you know, we're on all the social media platforms and stuff. But, uh, yeah, we're a print magazine, produce six issues a year. You know, it's a, a, a high-quality, you know, 72-page magazine. Um, covers all aspects of bear hunting. So we do our best to cover hound stuff and tactical stuff for spot and stalk and tactics for bait stuff and adventure hunts and brown bear and black bear. Just try to cover the the very wide swath that bear hunting is in North America. So that's what we do. Well, March is officially going to be bear hunting month at Houndsman XP. So uh, how timely is this that we kick off bear hunting month of March at Houndsman XP with the uh, owner editor of bear hunting magazine. So it's a, it's a great, uh, great opportunity, Clay. And before we get into our topic today that we really want to drill down on, but we're going to talk about storytelling today. We're going to talk about the value of storytelling, the history of storytelling, and and why we need to keep storytelling alive. But but before we get there, Clay, you know, Steve was talking to me before we started the recording, and not all of our audience may be familiar with Clay, who you are, Clay. So so we want to talk to you about who you are, you know, your hunting background. Uh, what motivates you to, uh, to, to purchase the bear hunting magazine and, and what keeps your wheels turning every day? So, uh, sure. Steve, you want to ask some questions on that? Well, as I'm thinking, Clay, you know, I, uh, I think I know you fairly well just from watching your videos and, and your posts on social media and our conversations, uh, relative to the, to the magazine articles, but I'd like to know, you know, the whole story, Clay Newcomb, where you grew up, uh, uh, your little family background, how you got involved with hunting and, and ultimately bear hunting. And then also with the plot dogs, which uh, you and I share a a great love for that breed. And, uh, just, you know, start us at the beginning. Am I chopped liver over here? I've got two of those plot liquors right up the house. (laughs) Hey, he, well, you know, Chris and I both are, are guilty, you know, of I, I'm dabbling around here with a Holstein. Oh, well, that's a, a tree walker for the, those who might not know. You know, I used to tell people, I said, you know, I, I was fairly well respected in the plot breed, you know, and now I've got this walker and I'm out here just wallowing around in the in the gutter with all the rest of you guys. You've been shunned. Well, but yeah, Steve, my, so I, I grew up in Western Arkansas and my father was, uh, my grandfather. Well, I mean, way back in the Newcomb family, we were hunters, but my, my father was a, was a bow hunter and a very serious whitetail deer hunter. My grandfather was a, was a bird dog trainer. And I feel like that's where I got the 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 love and appreciation of dog sports and using dogs for hunting my dad bird hunted some but uh not our birds died out and basically in when i was in high school when i was 14 i got my first coon dog grew up in mena arkansas pretty rural 
town in the in the Washita Mountains, and a, a buddy's dad took us coon hunting, and you know, getting bird dogs just wasn't that big of an appeal because we didn't have birds. Even though I had two bird dogs when I was in when I was pretty young, my grandfather gave me a trained English setter and uh, hunted it for a few years, and then we just didn't have birds. But got into coon coon hunting, got two registered blue ticks in about 1994, probably. And I just fell in love with coon hunting. Honestly, you know, I've, I've thought about it as the older I've gotten. Coon hunting was really probably my first personal passion inside of the outdoor world. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I grew up bow hunting whitetail deer, but it was almost like I was being not drugged by my dad because he didn't he didn't force me to do it but you know it was my dad's passion and then it became my passion as i began to have success and as i got older but coon hunting was something that i could connect with when i was young and uh i I just i got into it honestly because um well part of it was my dad i was i was afraid of the dark this is kind of a this kind of a tangent. Uh, I was when I deer hunted with my dad. I'm serious. I was. I was you heard it here first, folks. You yeah. heard it right here on Houndsman right XP podcast. That's right. Uh, I was uh, I was a pretty fearful little guy, and uh, I was afraid of the dark. And and I, my buddy's dad took me coon hunting, and my dad said, "Hey, you ought to start coon hunting so that you won't be afraid of the dark." And so that's what I did. And, uh, and I loved it. And, uh, but, but I coon hunted until I went to college. So from the time I was 15, you know, till I was about 19, I had coon dogs. So it was a relatively short period of time that we hunted and, uh, really didn't know much about hounds, had hounds, hunted, treed coons, but I really didn't get, I really didn't become a, a, what I would consider a houndsman until I was an adult. I mean, even in the last five years when we got back into coon hunting, really started learning about hounds. And, um, and so when I was 35, I'm 40 now, but when I was 35, we got plot dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. I, my story's kind of cut up here, but, but, uh, it was through meeting some of these guys we were doing legendary bear hound, articles on steve hurd was actually the first guy that we ever did a story on mm-hmm. and uh, i ended up getting a dog from steve hurd i had young kids and i just thought man we ought to get a we ought to get a hound and start coon hunting and so we did um and and that has been life-changing really i mean uh even though it, it feels like i never left coon hunting but for 15 years i didn't coon hunt and uh, but let me go back. That's my, that's the hound section, you know, birthed from the love or the, the passion shown to me by my grandfather, who was a bird hunter. I got into hounds, but really I was, uh, the bear hunting scene came on as really Arkansas came of age in the bear world. I mean, we didn't, we, we had bears, bear, this is the native range of bears, but we really didn't start having a huntable, really good bear population um, until the 1990s. And basically, it was like bear hunting was kind of this new thing. 
and uh, my dad didn't really bear hunt, and I killed my first bear in 2001 in Arkansas, and I just was like, man, what a beast. What a beast. <laughs> really, I'm mean, 21 years old, and uh, I killed a bear with my bow, and, uh, you know, my my dad and everybody else was just kind of like, oh, cool, bear. And I was just like, holy smokes, this is an amazing animal. And uh, and that set me on a trajectory to just learn as much as I could about bears. And nobody cared. Honestly, that's the way it felt and was, uh, is that there were just so few people here that gave a darn about bears. And, uh, and, and it wasn't that they despised them. It was just... It was just almost like a, just a secondary type hunt that nobody really was passionate about. And uh, anyway, that's all changed now. You know, 20 years later, bear hunting's a big deal here. People have realized we have a world-class wildlife resource. And uh, and I, I, the trajectory of my hunting world kind of started angling towards bear, not really by choice. It, it kind of just happened uh i i i feel like bears chose me i didn't really choose them um it was like there was just this hole in the in in arkansas and i anyway i started the arkansas black bear association in like 2010 which was a non-profit hunting conservation organization for bears uh the organization is still intact but pretty much on uh in hibernation uh, it has been for the last five years, um, but from that, I acquired Bear Hunting Magazine and and then kind of stepped onto the national bear hunting stage, and from there, that's when I really saw the, the, the breadth of the sport and started to learn about bears on a continental level, and you know, it just kind of grew from there in terms of my personal interest and passion and bear hunting and, and preserving bear hunting. Um, you know, hunters are, are absolutely vital in the preservation of bears. It's not intuitive to someone who doesn't understand North American hunting, but the reason we have bears in North America is because of hunters. Preach exactly. it, brother. So to, to remove hunters from the situation is going to be detrimental to wildlife and wild places. And, uh, and that's where, when I got Barony magazine, it's like, I started to see that we, we were actually massively under attack in different parts of bear hunting. And, and so we, we've really become a, a voice for bear hunters, bear hunting, conservation, trying to educate people, trying to put, you know, I think what leaders need to do is, is put words in people's mouths, form ideas that people can understand and see and can be shared. I mean, that's, that's how, that's what we do is we, we, we see something, we say it, we proclaim it, and then other people are able to do the same thing. And, and, uh, you know, what we're saying is hunters are the good guys. And, uh, and we're trying to tell our story about bear hunting and clean ourselves up too. You know, I think there's a lot of places inside of hunting where where we've got a lot of personal work to do to 
to clean ourselves up so that we can be the representation of all the good things that hunting is and what hunting adds to society. So anyway, that's, that's the message I preach. Yeah. And it's a good one. And, and last week's episode on the Houndsman XP podcast was with Gene Hopkins and uh, he talked about a lot of the things that you just talked about. So this is going to be the, the last week's episode was kind of a launching pad for that message that you just preached there. So how can we be effective influencers? And, and you talked about leaders being able to share the vision and, and uh, deliver the message out there to people to become more involved or even invested into this lifestyle that we, that we enjoy so much. So, um, Steve, you got any follow-ups before we, before we dive in? Well, just to say that, you know, over the weekend or, or last few days, I was in Alabama and I picked up a copy of their little other uh, game regulations. And I was trying to Google it here, the name, because I, I've forgotten the full name of the governor of Alabama. It's a lady. Her first name is Kay. Maybe uh, someone can help me with that. But in her message at the beginning of this publication, she was stating exactly what Clay just said and about and what you said, Chris, about the hunters being the core of conservation without the hunters and without the hunters license fees and and all that goes along with it. There would be no wildlife. I mean, she just flat uh, put it that way. And I thought that was great. You know, of yeah. course, Alabama's a big hunting state, you know, and uh, and she recognizes that. But it's good stuff. Governor yeah. Kay Ivey is Ivey. Yeah, yep. is definitely a friend to to hunters or she portrays herself in that in that aspect. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, you know what? Today's podcast, I mean, we, we talk about the conservation issues a lot. But, uh, you know, kind of segue into our topic for today. We just heard your story, Clay. We heard your story of who you are and what you do um, and, and the impact that you are having on, on hunting on the national stage now. And I've watched you uh, for, for a while now. You've got a podcast that's doing really well, Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Uh, you've got a YouTube channel. And... I get confused on that part. I see Bear Horizons, and then I see Bear Honey Magazine. And I also see Clay Newcomb Films. So I'm not sure what all you got going on there, but talk to us a little bit about that YouTube channel. Maybe I need to work on my branding. So <laughs> the, only, the only YouTube channel we have is Bear Honey Magazine YouTube channel. Okay. Bear Horizon was the name of our bear hunting series before we had a YouTube channel. I got you. So, Basically, we were making just DVDs and filming our hunts. And so we had we kind of had to have a name for what we were doing, and we called it Bear Horizon. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, and then Clay Newcomb Media is basically I'm just putting my stamp on the work that I'm doing. Okay. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you know that there's you know our our media is uh is is we're the ones that are putting it together that's what so I you're guess. like you're like the lebron james series for nike <laughs> i'm not sure i follow the analogy but okay <laughs> i know we're not Ooh. allowed to we, you wish you hadn't gone there yeah i know <laughs> okay let's talk about the uh let's let's go back in the day remember the larry bird series for converse oh yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there we go. That's worth talking about. That's uh, worth talking about. Hey. But uh, we won't talk about golf, and we nope. and we're no, not talking about I'll, tennis either. Tennis or border collies. Yeah, That's the dog that we don't talk about on our podcast. Right, right. Well, well are, you're the guest, so we're going to honor your wishes, Clay. <laughs> Uh, we well, are... I want to just jump in here real quick, Chris, Go for it. about that magazine. You know, when I first saw, you know, I grew up in a bear hunter's home. Oh, you know, mountains of West Virginia. Uh, you know, bear hunting was a way of life over there. Uh, but nobody, there was no real hoopla about the Eastern bear hunter. You know, I mean, uh, you you didn't read anything about them. You know, the Coonhound magazines really full cry would have a, some bear hunting stories from time to time, but there there was just nothing there, you know, and 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 I guess we just kind of got used to that not having any kind of recognition for for that lifestyle, and then along comes Clay with this magazine. Oh, I hadn't seen bear hunting prior to your. Uh, purchasing the 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 magazine clay, Nor but I. the first issue, first issue that I saw, uh, just knocked me out, man. I said, "Whoa, this is great," you know, and uh, and so you know, having been around bears and bear dogs and all that stuff, and mo- at the the first issue I saw was predominantly you know spot and stalk and bait hunting and things like that. But I always loved to see those those gorgeous photos and all that. But then you know, the, the editorial began to, to change and I began to see more and more of the hounds being involved and well done articles. And it is a first class publication. I'm not trying to blow smoke here today. It really is. And, um, so anyway, a big, big thanks to you and, 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 you know, and then this, you know, our sport or our lifestyle, as we say, uh, was was beginning to be recognized for what it is, and then you do all of these great interviews with Roy Clark and all these people, um, you know, and it just kind of uh, says, hey, you know, uh, Hound World, uh, the bear hunters, and is an important part of it too. Absolutely, you know, it's a tough story to tell, Steve, and I think that's probably why it's not been told in the mainstream media as much. Is it's it's complex, you know. Right. Uh, right. It's complex. The the demographic is not prone to uh, to media savvy. You know, I mean, that's just the truth of it. And I mean, it's just a. It's, it to me, it was just kind of like a part of the part of the hunting world that's just misunderstood and not really <laughs> seen much. I sure didn't know anything about bear hunting with hounds, you know. 10 years ago. I just didn't know it. We did, we can't run big game here in Arkansas with hounds or at right. least bears. We can't. And, uh, so it, it just was kind of fascinating to me. And from the hound aspect, it was pretty fascinating because I mean, the bear is the toughest big game animal in North America to treat with a hound. And, uh, mm-hmm. like Steve Hurd says, and I, I like, I like what, I like the idea of what he said. I don't know if it's true, but I like it. And I'm standing by it is that, to breed a bear dog, you have to put more things together in line than any animal that is bred by mm-hmm. modern humans. Uh, <laughs> Racehorses, whatever, a bear dog has to have so much. 
And like I said, that could be debated, but I like the sound of it, so I'm going to keep saying right. it. I mean, there's just a lot of, lot of things that a dog has to have. I know for sure a bear dog's got to have a lot more than a coon dog, in my opinion. I'm going to make somebody mad by saying that. In terms of, uh, uh, I just I just feel like that, and I'm a coon hunter, uh, but I, I just think it, it it it's an amazing thing that they're doing there. Well, I used to say coon dogs are quarterbacks, bear dogs are linebackers. You know, yeah. but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, that's true. I, there's definitely more pros to what you said than cons, for sure, in my view. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, we yep. are we are uh, uh, going to talk about s- this other topic, the storytelling and and things like that, and and um, certainly Bear Hunting Magazine has has made an impact on bear hunting. And the thing I like about it is the fact that it's bridged these gaps. You know, you see uh, spot and stalk. I, I was just in Montana, came back from there on my second trip out there in a couple of years, but last year when I was out there. Uh, when they found out that we were hound hunting, there was a, a hunter, and it was a woman in a local restaurant that, that went on a tirade about bear hunting with hounds, and, and spot and stalk is the only way that is allowed, uh, the only legal way to take bears in Montana. So uh, there has been a, a, a gap that needs to be bridged between these bear hunters, and, and I see that gap closing thanks to Bear Hunting Magazine. So that's my input on Bear Hunting Magazine. If you're a bear hunter and you're not taking it, there's a lot more in there than, than just uh, great pictures and uh, accomplished writers. There's a message in there, and, and I look at Bear Hunting Magazine as, as the leader for, for the future of bear hunting across North America. So congratulations, Clay. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks. I will agree. Yeah, so let's drill down into some storytelling. We're going to shift gears. We've been telling stories, and Steve, you're, you, I'm going to interview the two of you because I feel like, um, Clay, you've got an effective message, but you do a lot of that through storytelling. And, and as we write articles or we do podcasts or we make public appearances for speaking engagements, people want to know the story of who you are and where you came from, and, and they like analogies and and the fact that that uh, you can deliver your message with something they can relate with and what better way to do that is there than than stories and stories have been a historical genetic makeup of the human race before the written word if you look at the uh, the israelite the hebrews in the bible you know moses did not write genesis exodus leviticus and numbers until almost 500 years after Adam and Eve were on the earth uh, by, you know, biblical scholars. And the way those were were passed down, those stories, uh, the way he recorded those, of course, some will will rightfully argument, you know, it was was the grace of God and, and God's hand in the whole thing. But Moses grew up listening to those generation stories time after time after time after time until they infiltrated the culture. Uh, we just got back from the Navajo Nation in, in northeast Arizona and, and northwest New Mexico, and we talked to several Navajos out there who talked about uh, the way their grandmothers and their grandparents would, would relate the stories of, of their culture and their traditional 
hunting grounds and, and where they grew up. So uh, storytelling is an integral part and in our DNA as human beings, and we like stories. And so I want to ask the two of you, and Steve, I'll ask you first, um, what do you see as the, the value of stories as it relates to the houndsman? Well, Chris, you know, being a writer, and I had no formal training in writing. Um, I've been always uh, very interested in reading, read everything I could ever get my hands on when I was a kid, from the back of the cereal box to, to you know, Hemingway. But, um, you know, I, I have always, being a writer, you know, I am a storyteller whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And I have written very little fiction in my life. Uh, there are a few stories in the book that I published that uh, are fictional, but they, they usually carry some kind of a message uh, in there. There's a little bar, but there's a hook in there that, that hopefully uh, uh, you know, uh, snares the reader to, to my way of thinking. But at any rate, I grew up with stories my family uh, there's a rich history of storytelling down through the generations because we were you know i wasn't raised in new york city or in la i was raised in the hills of southern west virginia and uh, my father was from middle tennessee a farm boy and my dad was a great storyteller dad could tell a story he didn't tell you that the bear went over the mountain he told you which mountain, which side of the mountain he went over, which side of the tree the moss was growing on, on the top of the mountain that the bear went over, how many times he ran around such a rock, you know, and I mean, every detail. My dad grew up in the in the uh, farm country, you know, in the country, and so he was a walking encyclopedia on flora and fauna. <laughs> I mean, he really was in his simple way. And so I grew up hearing all those stories of, um, you know, my, my family and the, the dogs. My dad grew up with cur dogs, squirrel, possum hunting, you know, and all those stories were fed to me all the way up through my life. And uh, it's just easier, no matter what your message is, I believe, and I, I think Clay will agree with me, I believe it's easier if you can relate it to a story that someone gets interested in the story and then they begin to see the message in the story. And so the great storytellers, and I think Clay certainly is, I've heard some of his online, um, you know, they tell that message, you know, and, and it gets down next to the marrow, you know, and the listener is, I was sitting around the table uh, this last weekend on Saturday and we were with a bunch of coon hunters and I was, we were reliving some of the stories of interesting things that happened around these major coon hunts. And I, you know, and I tend to talk too much. I know that I'm doing it right now, but <laughs> you're the guest. <laughs> I, I no, We do have a guest and I'm going to shut up for my critics out there. But anyway, <laughs> I just kind of took a little glance around the table and there were like seven guys sitting there and they were, you know, their eyebrows were up and that I had their total attention. 
And I was just relating something that had happened at one of these hunts, but it was interesting to them. So I think, you know, I, I to go back to your question, Chris, how does this influence? I believe the question was, how does this, uh, has this affected our sport of hounds and all this stuff? I think relating, whether it's a story of a hunt last night and, and, you know, um, whether it's, uh, the, the story of going to hunt with a famous dog one time and how that dog performed to the really funny little anecdotes that like Matt Radford, the old bear hunter back in West Virginia, he'd tell stories and he'd embellish them. Uh, boys, they were, you know, they had that bear bait back into Laurel's man and the dogs were flying as that dog slapped them out of there. And I picked me up a pine knot, man, and I want, w- waited in there and I fit that thing to the rosin was dropping off my elbows, you know, <laughs> and those, those, those are the kind of stories, you know, when I was a kid that I heard and you knew in your heart of hearts, he didn't do that, but you know, you wanted to hear it. Whether right, whether it right. was true or not. So anyway, I rambled as usual, but I think storytelling has always been an integral part. Whether it's sitting on the tailgate, sitting around the clubhouse when you get back from the hunt, um, you know, around the the campfires type thing. And it's just always been a part of my life. Yeah, yeah, and and you look at that, and you probably the best analogy that um, you know I come up with on people want to tell their story. Everybody has one. And, and we want to all tell our story. Uh, I think about that scene in dances with wolves after the Buffalo hunt and they're all sitting around in the teepees and they're stuffing themselves on Buffalo. And Kevin Costner is trying to get away cause he's sleepy and he's tired and he wants to go to bed and they keep dragging him back in the, in the teepee to tell the story of killing the Buffalo, you know, over and over and over. Um, it, it's got to have entertainment value. And Clay, Clay, I'll pose the same question to you. How do you see the ability to tell stories as being a positive influence on this, the lifestyle of the houndsman today? Well, you know, a story told by a human has the capacity to relay a whole lot more information than just the actual facts and details of the story. Right. Uh, that, There's a difference between a lecture and a story. And we'll get into that. Yep. Go ahead. That's right. And, 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 and I think that in that is the beauty of oral story storytelling. I mean, the, the, the story of humankind has been built on oral storytelling tradition. I mean, just like you said it earlier, it's in our DNA and and I think a a phrase that maybe describes it well is that a story told by somebody that you respect and you have some context for has an impartational quality to it. Uh, it has the ability to show you what that person values. It shows you what that person thinks is funny, what that person thinks is important what that you get to see the world through that person's eyes and that's entertaining. It's engaging, but it's also a powerful medium to relay a value system to people. And so aside from a story, just being funny, 
Like I can listen to the best storytellers that I know. And I mean, I'm not thinking about these things. Like I'm not thinking this guy is relaying his value system to me. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm just laughing or I'm engaged or I'm my eyebrows are up and I'm going, holy cow, did that really happen? I, I, but really what he's telling me, he's showing me what's important and, 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 and I'm learning, you know? And so that's, I think we're all inclined to, to love a good story. And, uh, I think motivation is important too. Like I have a very, and I think we all do, but I'm really aware of it inside of myself is that I have a very, very strong indicator of, or like an authenticity meter inside of me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if somebody's telling <laughs> a story so that everybody in the group is going to think they're cool and mm. it's like I'm a little bit, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I may sit there and listen and nod my head, but I am not. The story is tainted by the person's self-interest inside of telling it. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying I don't enjoy telling a story. I mean, man, if we're at our camp or if I'm out with my kids when we're coon hunting and their buddies, I mean, I'll get into telling a story and it'll it'll be a big show, you know. Right. But, <laughs> but, but the guy that tells a story that is just trying to make himself look good and you're just – I that automatically right. – loses value inside of my book um so i feel like motivation is important and i said i've said this before too i'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with somebody saying that i'm a good storyteller because i think that the best storytellers that i've been around didn't know that they were good storytellers mm-hmm. it, it's it was it was just such an authentic flow of human communication Right. You know, they were 60 years old before somebody said, man, you're a good storyteller. And they're like, really? I didn't know that. And, you know, and they were. I mean, they were great storytellers. So if I tell um, you you're a good storyteller, tell me a story. How's that going to go, Clay? Well, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm just saying it. it I, I don't. I, I'm, it makes me. I, and I'm kind of being funny, but, you know, it. it uh like if somebody, I don't know, and I've I've done some of these storytelling events and stuff like that, and, and that's kind of a that was kind of a stretch for me, but I enjoyed that a, a ton. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that you can't set up a story and tell it in a formal way, but but my point is is that the motivation of the storyteller is important, authenticity is important, true passion for what you're talking about is important. Um, Aside from just the just the facts, you know, um, but in my experience, Clay, you know, I, the term storyteller was never bantered around in my neck of the woods. You know, they it never said, you know, uh, this guy's a good storyteller or that, but they were recognized, of course, for the little, you know, funny things that they said and all, and. I, you know, to me, it's just been relating experiences, you know, that, that are real and, uh, and yeah, there's some humor in some of them. There's some sadness in some of them. There's some anger, uh, moments maybe that would make you angry. If, if I related to you the story 
of how I had a dog shot off the tree in Michigan. Um, you know, all the heartbreak of that, the anguish, the, uh, the court trial, the, the testimony, all that thing is a story that will evoke all kinds of different emotions in people, you know, but it's really just an account of something that happened. And I think, uh, you know, some people are better at it than others, but the ones that I've always enjoyed the most are the ones that can weave humor in through the, the, the narrative, you know, and make it a little humorous and, uh, and, and so forth. But, uh, I grew up, you know, with my mother is now 97 years old. She'll be 98 next month. And she descends from the Hatfields of uh, uh, West Virginia and Kentucky that you mentioned Kevin Cosner, you know, he was mm-hmm. in the, the uh, HBO series. I think it was HBO that, that did the most recent one about that family. And there's so many stories that circulate around that, you know, some of them humorous, some of them, uh, and some of them within my own family, uh, you know, my grandfather always denied that we had anything to do with that branch of the Hatfield clan. But I later did my research and found out that my mother and Devil Ants Hatfield uh, descended uh, back five or six generations from a pair of brothers. Uh, so, you know, but uh i you know that explains stories. a lot <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well i say you know devil ants lived a lot uh earlier than my mother did you know and uh why was that d- uh, difference in those ages of those generations well quite honestly devil ants's generation killed each other off or the mccoys took care of it for them and where my mother's generation were pretty peaceful <laughs> yeah so yeah. anyway but that's that's just an example of uh i know i'm i'm chasing rabbits here but uh well, we 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 definitely uh clay you you put some things in there and steve you guys talked about the value of the story uh John Maxwell is is coined this phrase, I believe, but people won't know how much they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when I see people who can who are relatable, they are willing to tell their story and and they draw you into that so that you will listen to what they have to share afterwards. Abraham Lincoln was known as a great storyteller. Uh, Mark Twain was was probably the most recognized storyteller of all time. Uh, in in more modern, but still a few years back, we had Jerry Clower. You know, people would come to listen to Jerry Clower. Of course, every one of his stories was of the humorous type. But at the same time, just like you said, Clay, you knew what was important to Jerry Clower. And that was yeah. a simple Southern lifestyle. He made a living off of that. Um, and, and so everybody's got that story. So how do, we, how do we develop that ability to tell stories, to be effective communicators? Because right now we, we touched on it during the bear hunting, you know, when we talked about bear hunting magazine, we've talked about it on our podcast. We are at the stage in our hunting lifestyle where we are under attack every day so how do we use the ability to tell stories to get our message out 
Mm. You know, to me, I feel like maybe we're talking about like two different kinds of stories, you know, I mean, like, uh, like, like Jerry Clower, I think would be just like entertainment. Pure entertainment. That's a, that's a, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I so agree. That like one spectrum of the storytelling world, and then the other, the other. Until spectrum. let me interrupt you. Until have you ever watched Jerry Jerry Clower's testimony about his faith and his Christianity? I I may have years ago. It kind of rings a bell, but I cannot recall it. So let me just let me. This is his message. Okay, he used the storytelling to draw people in and and to draw people around him, and then. He gives the testimony of his faith. And and to me, he was more effective because he had been able to relate his story. Now he had shared a piece of himself with someone and, and got an investment from them, either an emotional response or an emotional investment that I want to be connected with Jerry Clower, and now he can deliver his message. So that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah. you know, I think I think – the way that we become more effective, better storytellers that will help preserve our lifestyle is that a story, the storyteller has to have the depth of understanding and just personal depth, I think, to understand the context that he's talking about. You know, so like a, like a bad story would be we went out and turned loose the dogs and treat a bear. We've all heard you know, somebody like, well, what happened? Well, we turn the dogs loose and treat a bear, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, really. And it's just like, that doesn't really, yeah, you told what happened. But that really doesn't tell the story, you know, and the guy that, and obviously the context matters. Like if, if, if you're just trying to relay information to your hunting buddy to know whether he treated or not, you know, that's one thing. But if you're, if you're in another situation where, context is needed i mean to 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 you know talk about talk about the dogs talk about the history of the dogs talk about you know put some value around what happened and then show the excitements show the work and dedication i mean the, the story's got to have this complexity to it that that shows the whole context i think that's important i mean um and now if we're Maybe another conversation would be, how do you tell a good story? Uh, you know, I think there are probably some components of storytelling that if somebody were to focus on those things and, and learn how to be a better communicator, they could probably become a better storyteller. Okay. Um, if that was their intent. Well, let's, let's, let's divide this up then. So, yeah. so the reason to be able to tell a story is to be able to ultimately have credibility to deliver a message. If you are find yourself on that stage where um, you need to influence people, okay. Um, so you've got you've got that value of storytelling. Now let's talk about the entertainment value of storytelling and and why why that's important. You know you've done you've done a, you mentioned it you've done a backcountry hunters and anglers storytelling night and. Uh, there's a reason why BHA has embraced that concept. Can you talk a little bit about why they've they've embraced that concept of storytelling? Well, I think it. Uh, 
I think it's they've captured something that has sort of been lost inside of the world of technology and social media, and that is the personal connection that people have to their hunting and, 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 and their adventures. And so just to have a person standing up there telling a story in a live audience, kind of a hyped environment, is just it is a ton of fun, and people really enjoy it. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think they're, they're capturing something that technology, the technology of the last 20 years has kind of not taken away from us because stories are still alive and well, but our communication is more based around technology than face-to-face these days. I, I, does that answer your question, Chris? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I can uh, jump in there a little bit to say, uh, that I agree with you totally, Clay, uh, when I was in Michigan and with our focus on bear hunting in the month of March, uh, I think this uh, goes along. At the Michigan Bear Hunters Convention each year in March, uh, they have the big bear contest. You know, you submit your bear, and uh, I think the top three winners get to come up to the podium and tell the story of how they got that bear. And these things are amazing. I mean, <laughs> you know, these are people that are not accustomed to standing in front of a group and talking about, uh, you know, a bear hunt, but, and some of them are timid about it and so forth, but some of them are, you know, they're, they're just brutally honest. And, uh, as they recap, you know, you feel the excitement and all. And I think that goes right along with what you're saying, you know, getting to hear the story from the horse's mouth, just the way it happened by a live, uh, speaker, it's so much better than reading it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So if you're going to tell an entertaining story, we'll get, we've talked about the heavy stuff. Let's talk about what are some key things that need to be um, included in an inter- a story that, that is entertaining. You know, obviously we've, we've said it, you know, you've got a story storyteller and you've got a lecturer. You know, lecturer passes raw facts and raw data we turned the dogs loose we treat a bear we shot the bear we tagged the bear we checked the bear in we ate the bear that's that's the lecture Um, yeah the story behind it is much more entertaining and and gives the audience we've all been in school and we think about our teachers take history for example um you can you can pick up a timeline of american history and see the different things that have happened since the colonial days Uh, but that's not interesting you know i always wanted to hear the stories behind uh you know the battle of concord or bunker hill or all those types of things and and Hollywood has capitalized on that by telling stories i just watched uh the story of the movie Midway last night and uh, it told the story of the Battle of Midway. I knew the history of it, but I got a personal connection through through a story of individuals who were involved there. And so what is what has made you successful? And I'll, we'll ask each of you. What has made you successful as a storyteller for an entertainment purpose? Steve, you've written a book. It's it's entertaining you write columns every month clay you produce a podcast and and 
have a have a national magazine or a worldwide magazine on bear hunting you've got to have something that keeps people coming back and how do you do that who wants to go first let clay go first he's our let clay go first he's our guest we we got to have proper manners here chris <laughs> yeah, a little, little humor you know i think what i think there's there's a couple of components of good storytelling and they're pretty i think they're pretty simple is that a storyteller has to pay attention to detail and be able to relay the details of something that may not even seem relevant, but really are relevant. You know, the best storytellers that you hear talk will talk about something that's like unrelated to the actual objective of the story. So if it's a hunting story, you know, the the story's about the hunt. Well, he'll tell you about, you know, the rickety old truck they were driving down the road <laughs> in, or he'll tell you about the, the way the, the, his buddy's, you know, hair was sticking straight up because he hadn't combed it when he got out of bed that morning. You know, I mean, just like, so inside of life, it's like, you're just, you're just paying attention. You're aware of what's happening. And then you're able to give those details as they're, as they're relevant at the right time. So, you know, attention to detail and then, um, honestly, in a, in a oral storytelling, inflection and passion in your voice is important. I mean, you will rarely hear a good storyteller that has a monotone voice. We were there, and then we were over there, and then this happened, and then that. I mean, the best storytellers go from quiet to loud, from, from not excited to excited. You know, I mean, they're they're charismatic, and uh, and you can't you can't fake that. You know, I mean, you you just it, it, the, the story's got to be congruent with who you are when nobody's listening. That's what makes it authentic. But uh, I, I listened to a podcast one time that was talking about voices. You know, so much of uh, even radio communication and now podcast is simply voices, and they mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. how. There are people that have really interesting voices, cadences, dialects, and accents, and some people that don't, you know, and that was news to me. I mean, it, it was just like, wow, that's pretty cool stuff. And, 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 and this guy was talking about inflection in the voice, like, you know, we were going over there, and then we stopped, and we went over there, you know, just up and down, <laughs> up and down. And, and again, you don't, you can't really train yourself to do that but but just good communication communicates things through tone you know there are whole languages that are tonal languages meaning that uh like mandarin chinese you can say the exact same word that's spelled the exact same way and it means something totally different based upon the tone of it you know and so so just communicate so you know so inflection authenticity passion, detail, uh, the right length. I mean, man, the worst thing that somebody can do when they're talking to me <laughs> is just go on and on and on and on and on. And, you know, I mean, we've all been around the guy that's like, man, that would have been a good story if you'd have quit about five minutes ago. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and me and Steve probably are teetered on the edge of that sometimes. Um, <laughs> I got a I got a real quick rabbit path because I want to talk about inflection. I want to talk about dialect and that voice thing, and yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna rabbit path this thing a little bit. So, have you ever noticed 
that news broadcasters, I know people from Alabama. I know a lot of people from Alabama, and I know how their, their, their dialect is, and I know what their accent is. But if you go down there and watch a news station from Birmingham, how come you don't hear the person sitting on the news at the news desk saying y'all and Ewan's and, and y'all ought to come on down here. Uh, you know, you don't hear that authenticity in their voice. So why does it work for the news? They're trying to tell a story, but it may not. Have you ever thought about that? Have you watched that? Uh, are you, uh, is this a question? This is yeah. a question. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> There's going to be a quiz. <laughs> I mean, mainstream you know there are people that have neutral accents um and the people with neutral accents typically connect with a broader audience than someone with a very narrow regional specific accent i mean and that's why politicians usually try to have a more neutral accent in certain places and a very like strong accent in other places right Right. That's just true. So they know their audience. That was a key I was trying to get, get drilled down on. They know their audience and they're able to relate to that audience. You when knew the answer to this question before you asked it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Set you up, didn't he, Clay? Wow, that was good. I knew, you're, I knew you'd nail it. I knew you'd nail uh, it. Talking about inflection, a little story comes to mind with me about when I moved up to northern Ohio before I went to work for the registries. I was in a sales job for 10 years, and I worked in an office there, and one of the fellows that was a caretaker of the property there where I worked uh, was a coon hunter, and his name was Don Baker. And Don never went to a night hunt. He didn't take any of the magazines. He didn't circulate it, you know, didn't belong to a coon club, but he had a good, good black and tan, what we call a high tan, black and tan of Walker Cross coon dog. And the dog's name was Buster. Well, I met Don early on and right away he invited me to start hunting with him. And we literally hunted every night during the coon season, except Sunday nights. He used to say, uh, I'd be tired. I wanted to go, you know, I worked hard and at dark, 30, as we say, there you would be pulling in my driveway. But we hunted almost every night. But Don had this this way, the inflection of his voice. It, it was so humorous to me. He'd be relating a story about old Buster. And he'd say, Steve, last night I went hunting. Boy, it was a nice night. And, you know, I turned old Buster loose. And he always emphasized the bee and Buster when he when he was talking about his dog, he said, I turned old Buster loose and boy, he went up the Creek there and he struck. It was like every time he told the story, it was the first time. And he was amazed about what happened. And he said, an old Buster took that track over that hill and fell down in that holler and treed. Well, you know, we, I'm saying, well, I expect him to tree, you know, but to Don, everything <laughs> was emphasized. And then he'd get the capper was he'd go in and he'd say, boy, Steve, I went to that tree and I looked up that tree and there was a big old coon. He'd say, like, it was a coon, the first one I ever saw, you know, <laughs> and it, like he was amazing amazed you know every every aspect of it and he you know if you ask him he was a storyteller he'd say oh no i 
I couldn't do that. But <laughs> the inflection was definitely part of a Don Baker story. And and it made it interesting, you know, and humorous. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Clay, what? let's talk about, you know, I think there's the value of, of storytelling. We've We've touched on the art of storytelling. We've talked about voice inflection. We've talked about things like that. And, and one of the things that uh, uh, we all like to be entertained during a story. So when is it okay to bend the truth in a story? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, never, Chris. Uh, <laughs> now, you know, if, uh, if you're telling a story that everyone knows is – a little bit stretched then and it's a given that it's kind of a tall tale that I think that's okay. But, but I, I actually listened to something the other day that was, uh, on the psychology of lying. And, uh, and it was basically like the tagline was like, why we're all liars. And, uh, <laughs> and it, about, uh, how just in common communication, people get okay with telling things that aren't true. And I'm not talking about like deceitful lies, like someone stealing money and saying they didn't do it, but just like driving to work and saying, man, I waited in traffic for 20 minutes when really you only waited for 15. Um, and, uh, you know, it, that's kind of off topic, but I, but I was listening to that and, and I, I, I tried to, you know, an embellished story is sometimes better than the truth, and so I, I honestly always try to reel back stuff to bring it into as most as much truth as possible. I mean, if you can't tell a story that's not true, then you got no business telling a story. Now, that being said, if you're telling something to be funny, intentionally funny, and everybody knows it's just being funny, and you're exaggerating, you know, the drama of the situation. I think that's probably, you know, I think, I think we do that. But if you say the buck was a 160 inch buck and he was really only 125, you're just a liar. You know, <laughs> likes that. exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, Clay, I'll have to agree with you there. Uh, you know, it, and I'm not trying to uh, say that, you know, I'm beyond embellishing a story, but I try not to. I really get a little twinge down inside, you know, when I'm writing something and all to make sure I tell this just the way I know it to be true. And that's always just kind of been a thing with me. I, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect or any such, but it's always been a, a thing with me. If you're a, recounting something that happened, as you know it, an eyewitness thing or what, tell it the way it is. And I've had people tell me before that they, in my writing, that they feel like they're with me in the story. And and I guess that's what I've always wanted to, to, to relate, you know, is that tell the story in such a way that the person can feel that they're there experiencing the same thing that I experienced. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that I haven't embellished the story, but I try not to. You know, the right. thing the thing about life is it's funny enough. It really is. I mean, if you if you start talking about, you know, the the uh, the, the the quirks of people and uh, the, the fact that somebody 
wear suspenders with a belt. Uh, you can go on and on and on. You, it, life is funny enough if you're if you're open-minded enough, and and we've touched on this, detail-oriented to capture those things and put them into your story. Um, and talking about somebody that that uh, didn't comb their hair or, or you know their beard looked like a, a dead possum crawled up on their face. Um, you know, things like that. So I saw that once. Yeah. Yeah. I've trimmed that up. <laughs> I've trimmed that up. Yeah. So yeah. let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and, and we will, uh, uh, I want to tell some stories. I think it's important to, to relate some stories. And I know that both of you have a ton of them. I know you've been well rehearsed, but I'm going to start off with a story, and and you guys can dissect this. But but this story is called the day we broke broke Gary Crow, and uh, so this story happened on my recent Western tour for Houndsman XP, and uh, we were camped in the Swan Valley, and uh, I was hunting with Larry Anderson, my friend from Montana, and he told me that he had a friend who had a, a lion tag. And we were going to meet him and take him, take him. He was going to accompany us on the hunt. We, we had no desire to kill a mountain lion. So he was just going to, uh, to show up and, and he had a tag and he wanted to shoot one with his bow. And so the guy's name that showed up was Gary Crow. Gary Crow was an, is, is an attorney. Um, and these names are all true and accurate and we're not protecting the innocent here. So yeah. Or the guilty. But Gary was not your typical attorney. For one thing, he hunts. He wasn't the type of attorney that you want to lead out in the mountains and leave there. Uh, Larry was was a an absolute outdoorsman from beginning to end. From the time he got in our truck to the time that we 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 dropped him off, Gary had story after story after story to tell us. And these stories went on and on and on. But the day he showed up, the day we, we chose to hunt, uh, it had been raining and freezing, and so the roads were icy. I mean, completely icy. And we start the day out by Gary, Gary running about 20 minutes late. And Gary comes sliding into the driveway, and to the point the ice was so bad that he slid from the gate post about 30 yards with his brakes locked up and had to go off into the yard to stop himself in the, in the softer snow. So it was extremely treacherous that day. And, and Gary shows up and this guy's been hunting his whole life. He's wearing a world war two cotton zip up sweatshirt. He's got a mustache that's way out of control here growing down on his face. He looks like a typical, uh, person, uh, that, that spends a lot of time outdoors. Uh, you could see the, the story on his face, the weather lines, you could see his hands. You would have never guessed that this guy was a, was a person that works in an office or in the court most of the time. From the mm-hmm. time we got in that truck, we drove North for two hours, uh, an hour and a half to two hours because of road conditions. And Gary related stories about his mule getting shot from his camp about tracking down the, the shooters that, that, uh, uh, killed his mule. And I mean, it just went on and on and on to the point where it's like, 
man, I knew attorneys like to talk, but wow, this guy can flat talk. And uh, <laughs> so we're, we finally get to our destination. We're, we're riding around and tracked track side-by-side machines. There were two machines involved in this story. We find a lion track, and it was frozen. It probably made the night before, rained on and frozen, but we thought we're probably not going to get a better opportunity today. So Larry and I drop our hounds out, and um, uh, Gary's with us. He's carrying this bow, and i got to describe this bow. I think this bow was made about the first time that I bought my first bow in the early 80s. And uh, uh, I, I don't recall the the actual make and model of the bow, but you could tell it had been through the mountains a few times. And Gary's carrying this thing inside one of those soft camouflage cases around this mountain. And the snow was probably knee deep. Mm. We are we're tracking we're sight tracking this line. The dogs are trying to work it out. We get into an area that's that was infested by. Uh, lion tracks but also a lot of deer tracks there was a moose track in there and all of a sudden my dogs light up and take it down the mountain take the track down the mountain and i'm feeling pretty proud i'm thinking yeah here's a couple indiana dogs come out here larry's dogs aren't opening i've got this lion up and running jumped and we're moving i'm walking down through here i'm finding lion tracks i'm finding deer tracks i'm finding moose tracks and we continue down the mountain well larry's not following me and Gary and Larry are together, they're not following me. And I'm thinking, what in the world are they doing? And as I keep going and I keep going and I keep going, the lion tracks veer off and the deer tracks keep on and the dog tracks are following deer. So now I know exactly what I've got. I've got a couple of trashy coon dogs from Indiana running deer on, on a Montana mountain. <laughs> so as, as Larry and, and Gary work their way up the mountain, they're plugged into their GPS. We've got another machine down at the road, and and the people that were in that machine, the hunters in that machine, see where they're headed, and they, they circle up to pick them up on the top road to check in with them to make sure that they were on something. Well, long story short, that part, they could not get the track up and working. That's why Larry's dogs weren't involved. They, they thought about it, but as soon as they figured out what was going on, they were smart enough to know that whatever – Whatever my dogs were running wasn't anything they wanted to be a part of. And uh, Larry takes them to the top, and and the other hunters get up there, and they load their dogs in the box, and they decide, we'll put the dogs in the box. We'll sit, Larry and Gary will sit on the tailgate of this machine, and we'll go back down the mountain to, the, to, to Larry's side-by-side and pick that up, and then they'll go try to round up my mess somehow. So... I'm all the way down the mountain now. I'm down there, and I've got my dogs tracking. I've got them coming out. They're coming back out to me. I get get one of them on a leash. One of them's headed up behind me. But this ice is, road is so icy, I had to walk on the shoulder in the snow in order not to just slide right down the mountain on this icy road. As one of the machines start coming around, by this time I'm three miles away, and it's a machine. I can hear the machine coming. I can hear that side-by-side on tracks coming. It's skating sideways down this road you know, fishtailing and doing all this stuff. And as it comes up, they put on the brakes and it slides past me and I walk up there. I've got one dog on a leash. They'd picked up my other hound back up the road. had come out. And I noticed that Gary Crow was not there. And I said, what's going on? And I opened the door and Travis Walker is driving the, his machine. He said, we got a problem. We got a guy hurt. And I'm thinking, what in the world has happened? 
And I jump in that machine. Or no, they left me. They go on down the road. They come back to pick me up. Come to find out, while Gary and Larry were sitting on the tailgate, Travis's dog box comes out and collapses on top of them. Gary injured his hand. And they finally get Larry back around to the truck. We get all our mess cleaned up. And Larry, Gary's hand is, is swelling at this point. We've got to get him to the hospital. And so that takes precedence to the day. But even at that point, Gary never stopped telling stories. He started telling stories, maybe to get his mind off the pain or whatever. Well, needless to say, we didn't get Gary a lion that day. A couple, about 10 days later, we're in the cabin and we're talking about where we're going to hunt. The weather hadn't been, been going well. And uh, Larry says, well, let's go back up north. And I said, where are you thinking? He goes, you know where we broke Gary Crow. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. I've got a story I'd like to tell that it's not hound related, but it's a, it's one of my favorite stories from from uh, my early years of bow hunting, and uh, it involved my my cousin and uh, and I when we were bow hunting for deer down in Howard County in Southwest Arkansas. So we'd gone into this on public land down there, and my dad had found where a bunch of hogs were feeding under white oak trees. When we deer hunt down there, we're trying to find white oaks that are dropping and deer sign underneath the white oaks. And uh, and so dad had been looking for deer sign and he found a bunch of hog sign and a bunch of uh, white oak acorns. And uh, so he came back to our camp. We were camped and he told me and my cousin, my cousin was about eight years older than me. So I was like 19 or 20 and he'd been, you know, late 20s. And he said, hey, boys, I found some hogs. You ought to go in there and kill them. Mm-hmm. So he told us where it was at. Well, the next morning, we decided we were going to go in there and hang stands and hunt. And uh, it was it, it daylight savings time had happened that weekend in the fall. And so I, I can't remember the exact details of how it happened, but we ended up in the woods a full hour earlier than we planned to. So you know how that goes. I mean, we got there. And we took our stands in, hung our stands in a tree, got in the tree and are awaiting daylight. Both of us are hunting together. Mm-hmm. We decided to hunt together. 
he's we're sitting in the same tree in two different lock-on tree stands and and daylight just never comes never comes never comes never <laughs> and eventually we realized that daylight saving time messed us up and we were there an hour earlier so <laughs> we're sitting in the tree in just a black dark well daylight finally comes and shortly shortly after man we see hogs and we're hunting on the edge of a field about 20 or 30 yards back into the timber where there's these big white oaks you know that white oaks on the edge of a field mm-hmm. will be big and they're they're, they're just mm-hmm. more healthy than ant than, than trees that are back in the timber and these were big white oaks you know probably 30 40 inches in diameter and they were raining acres and man right at you know, shortly after daylight, when you could see good, we saw a whole group of hogs out in the field trotting towards our white oak trees. Oh, and I, I already told my cousin, told my cousin, he wasn't a big hog hunter. And, and I, I had been trying for several years to kill a big, big hog on public land with my bow. And, uh, and so I told him, I said, hey, here's the deal. Because he was kind of the guest. As I said, man, I'm just going to be honest with you. If a big hog comes in here, I'll shoot the big one and you don't care anything about it. So you just shoot, you know, whatever one you want. And he was totally cool with that. You know, he was like, absolutely. And uh, so that was my deal. I hope that doesn't indicate something about me and the way that I hunt. You shoot, you shoot the little one. I'll shoot the big one. Do you push, <laughs> do you push little kids down at the tree at squirrel trees? Too? <laughs> exactly. That That's what this story sounds like. <laughs> I was only 20 years old. So, you know, <laughs> But we made an agreement, and he was cool with it. Well, directly, here comes this group of hogs. And what it was is it was a big sow with a, with a, with a, with a, with a group of shoats, okay, younger hogs that were hers. And any other story other than the hog story, this wouldn't be legitimate. But hogs are an absolute infestation, and, you know, we're trying to get rid of hogs, mm-hmm. okay? Everybody knows that well what it was it was a sow and about eight little pigs and a big boar and they come in and just go to feeding underneath these white oaks and uh and i said okay i'm gonna shoot that big boar we could see his tusk i mean he was probably a 250 plus pound just jet black wild hog and and he was gonna shoot this sow these shoats were plenty big to live on their own but and 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 anyway, we draw our bows at the same time, and we're waiting for both these hogs to turn so that both of them are positioned right so that on the count of three, we can shoot these hogs at the same time. And, uh, you know, we draw our bows, and mine will be turned right, and I'd be like, man, mine's mine's good. Are you good? And he'd be, no, no, I can't see. I can't shoot. I can't shoot. We drew. We let our bows down three or four times before we finally drew and the big sow and the big boar were both broadside and were both just right there. And so finally they got turned and I said, okay, on the count of three, we're shooting. We had our, you know, we had rehearsed. We figured out what we we're going to do. And all of a sudden, one, two, thwack, we shoot. And man, I just ten ring this big hog right behind the shoulder, right where I'm aiming. And he misses this sow, just, just shoots right under well, the pigs just erupted, you know, like a covey rise. Mm-hmm. Just poof, pigs go everywhere, you know. And uh, and I had just hit my boar just right behind the shoulder. It didn't look like I got a lot of penetration, but I felt good about it. 
And man, that hog ran out through that field and he hit a barbed wire fence going about 30 miles an hour. <laughs> and that barbed wire fence shook for about 150 yards every direction. That's what it looked like. And uh, anyway, the pigs go go off. He missed one. I killed one. And so I'm like, I'm pumped. Well, we decided to sit up in the tree for about another 30 minutes before we go track the boar. Well, directly, we hear hog grunting down the hill from us. And so we hear hogs coming. And I go, man, get your bow. And I say, you know, if it's a same story, if, if it's a big boar, you know, I'm going to shoot it. If it's another one, you shoot it. Well, that that sow and those little piglets, I say the piglets, they were, they were, <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that. Shoats come, come in. Sounds like a Winnie and, the Pooh story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're feeding around. And, and I say to my cousin, I say, hey, why don't you just shoot one of those shoats? It'd be better eaten and it'd be easier to get out of here. And he's like, absolutely. So he draws back and shoots this shoat. When he shoots that shoat, that that thing goes to squalling and and just squealing like a pig does when it's shot, okay? And uh, was there banjo music in the story? <laughs> Way off in the distance. <laughs> banjo music. Well, that so the pig squeals, okay? Well, directly off down the mountain from the way that they'd come, I hear something just tearing down the woods, grunting and making a racket coming up the mountain. And here comes another big boar charging in to this this hog that has squealed. And I go, holy smokes. I wasn't going to shoot another one, but when I saw this one, I grabbed an arrow. And I was like, that is a big boar. I'm going to shoot him too. And this boar comes in and just absolutely is spinning circles around this show, trying to figure out what had happened to it. And it was just chaos. The sow was doing the same thing. And, you know, they were, they were trying to protect their, their, this other animal. And uh, this, this boar was growling and grunting and roaring the way my dad describes a, a boar hog when he's doing that, it, it's almost like a roar. I mean, pretty incredible. Anyway, I draw back and shoot this thing right behind the shoulder with a bow, just whack. And he doesn't even run off. He just all the more starts fighting and running circles and trying to figure out what's happening. And directly, he runs off slightly different direction than the, the other the other pig and hits the same barbed wire fence and goes down <laughs> to timber. Well, I've killed two big boars. I mean, just tendering them. I mean, I'm as confident as ever. And my cousin has killed, you know, a nice eaten size show. Well, we get down and I say, well, which one are we going to track first? You know, we had the show right there. And I say, well, let's track the first one that I shot first. We, so we take off on a good blood trail out through that field, circle around to the barbed wire fence where it went under, track down the woods, and just any second I'm expecting to see a big black hog. Well, the blood trail gets off to the bottom of the hill, and it kind of starts to turn. And it turns, <laughs> and it turns, and that blood trail starts coming back up the mountain straight towards my tree stand. 
that blood trail comes right back up to my tree stand <laughs> and then loops back around back into the timber. And it wasn't until I got back to the tree that I realized I'd shot the same hog twice. <laughs> we trailed that hog until three o'clock that afternoon in some of the thickest, nastiest briar thickets of Southwest Arkansas. And I jumped that thing up alive at three o'clock that afternoon. Never found that pig. Uh, and I hit him twice with, uh, with broadheads right behind the shoulder. But that, you know, and that, and I was young and didn't know at the time that the big boars have that cartilage shield right behind mm -hmm. their, their shoulder. And I just didn't, didn't get the penetration I thought I did. And, uh, and, and I don't even know if that, I suspect the hog lived, but it was, uh, you know, a pretty incredible day. And, and I was shocked when that blood trail turned and came right back up by the, by the tree stand. Yeah, but I'll never... <laughs> <laughs> you thought you had two, but you had none, had none, man. That's a, that's a, a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Throw, uh, good throw, story. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Voice inflection. I heard passion. I heard excitement. Uh, it, I like the thwack. Yeah, the man. thwack. Got that down. Put yeah. me right there in the tree stand. It did. Yeah, <laughs> Steve, what you got? Oh, uh, well, lots of stories, you know. And most of the stories that I remember come from my days of hunting with my dad. Uh, and there's a lot of humorous ones that. Uh, that I could tell about the characters that I grew up with. We had a place there in West Virginia called the Liar's Corner. Uh, it wasn't the sign outside didn't say that, but it was a local uh, um, used car lot. Mm -hmm. And the and the hunter there was the guy that worked in the used car lot was Cliff Talbert, and he he was a coon hunter uh, of sorts. He was older. And, uh, you know, and all the coon hunters from the area would, uh, would gather in at lunchtime and sit on these school bus, uh, uh, seats that Cliff had, uh, sitting around there for that purpose. Uh, and the office was a two, uh, two rooms with a plexiglass window in between. Now the deal was that, uh, if you said something good about Cliff's dog, old Bruce. He had a big black and white walker dog named Bruce. And if you commented about Bruce did a good job last night or whatever, Cliff would invite you into the inner sanctum <laughs> and you could go in through the door behind the plexiglass and you could sit there. And the guys that would come in, um, and there's a whole cast of characters here, uh, uh, there was one fellow, uh, there were brothers there, Lacey and Virgil Adkins. And, and in their memory, you know, they were good guys, but they were typical of so many guys in that part of the country that had worked in the coal mines just long enough to get a good disability check. And then they coon hunted professionally after that. You know? <laughs> so they, they, uh, 
hunted about every night and uh, the Adkins brothers and and then there was uh, a railroader named Leo Lars and there was a kind of a radical young guy that uh, this guy's name was Robert Rash and if he listens to this podcast he'll probably kill me uh, <laughs> but uh, there were just a lot of different characters but if you in, were invited into the inner sanctum Cliff uh, you know he'd uh, share part of his lunch maybe give you a, a, a a dill pickle spear or something like that, you know, if you said something good about uh, uh, old Bruce. Well, one day we were all sitting around there, and I had a sales job, and I could get off. Uh, I mean, you know, I could stop by at lunch between calls or whatever, and I would sit in there in my little shirt and tie and all, but these guys would all come in and sit around as as guys will Tent, uh, you know, apt to do around a country store. It's kind of like that atmosphere, only there was no pot-bellied stove there. But uh, one of the hunters' name was Bob Bolin, and he would come in, and Bob had a big red bone hound. And Bob would come in and kind of sidle up to you wherever you were sitting, and he'd grab you by the knee. He'd, he'd take his hand, he'd, he'd grab your knee, and he'd say... Lord, honey, I found him last night. Man, he said, old, old Red treed up a holler up there behind that old mine, and there was a coon <clears throat> was dripping off the limbs. And he said, man, I found them where they are at. And, of course, he probably hadn't even been away from the TV, but that was just a typical, typical of these guys. But anyway, this one, there was a fellow named Howard Meadows. It was my hunting buddy. I hunted with him a lot. Great story, and I've mentioned him before. He was a World War II veteran captured by the Germans, came home, became a coal miner, was injured, severely injured in the coal mines, but he would still hunt all night with a walk with a severe limp. Well... This one day, one of the guys, and I don't remember which one, was in there, uh, and the door was cracked open, and they were talking about the night before the hunt that the dogs ran a deer. And Cliff had a cane that he kept right in the corner. And they were telling this story about this dog running a deer. Well, Howard Meadows was a real soft-spoken guy, but he had kind of a high voice. And as this story was going on, Howard just says, you know, had a little more uh, a louder voice than normal, did old Brucey run it? <laughs> well, man, how uh, Cliff grabbed that cane Bam, that door opens and out he comes and he's waving this this uh, cane around like Santa Ana attacking the Alamo, you know. And everybody in the whole room was mouth fly open and everybody's kind of covering up, you because know, <laughs> Cliff is going to give them a, a shellacking. But that was just a, a short story about uh, what life was back there in the hills of West Virginia where I grew up. One other little short one about Leo Lars. He would go up in the northern part of the state and he would coon hunt in Hardy County. Well, he was driving around one day looking for hunt, hunting spots, and he saw a beautiful black and tan dog sitting in the, in the yard. And uh, 
he stopped and walked up to the house and knocked on the door. And he said, is that your black and tan hound there? And he said, yes, sir, that's old Elvis. And he, and Cleo like this, he said, I, I sent, he said, where'd you get Elvis? And he said, well, I sent Plum to Arbuckle Kennels in Arkansas to get him. And, and of course, back in those days, they had these coon dog kennels where you could buy an A number one for $75. You'd get a good combination dog for there about 50 or 60. So he said, was, uh, will old Elvis tree a coon? And the guy said, well, no, sir, he won't. I'll be truthful with you. But if you'll buy him and you get him to tree a coon, you bring him back and I'll buy him back, he said. (laughs) (laughs) But those were just the typical stories that I heard as a kid and down through the years, you know, of, uh, and there's so many of them. But uh, in the telling, you know, one of my favorite stories was about the time Bronco treed the bear in the hollow tree. And I'll tell that maybe on another episode because uh, I've already hogged the mic so so much. But stories have always been a part of my life. I like to hear them. I like to tell them. I like to write about them. But I just think, uh, what would our lives be without these stories? Agreed. Agreed. There's no doubt that a story, uh, you go to the coon clubs, you go to... We all know of places like that in our communities uh, where hunters gather and they tell their stories of the day. And it's, it's been a historical aspect of human, the human race uh, since the beginning of time. So can't put enough value on the story, that's for sure. Clay, you got any final thoughts? Wrap this thing up. You know, um, no, storytelling is important to our culture. You know, it really is, and uh, and and I think it's something that's that's worth preserving, and it's it's worth people polishing up on their 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 storytelling, not not for the sake of becoming a good storyteller, but for the sake of transferring a value system mm. and and showing people the the fun excitement but also some of the, the more important values of why we do what we do. So, you know, we've got good stories too. I tell you what, what I say all the time is that, I mean, we're not sitting on our couches, you know, living boring lives. Hunters live amazing lives of adventure and risk and doing stuff that, you know, I mean, especially coon hunters, golly, I mean, we're going out in the middle of the night when most people are going to bed, Absolutely. you know, and, uh, and so we've got stories and, uh, and, and, and they're worth telling. And, and if we can be, if we can tell them in a compelling way that shows the context of our lifestyle, especially to eager ears, people that are interested in it, um, I think there's value in that. Agreed. You know, uh, I'll sum this thing up and then I'll kick it over to Steve for the last word here. But being able to tell your story, everybody has a story and being able to tell your story and show the passion that you have for the kind of lifestyle you lead is going to be effective 
in getting the message out. We've said that. I'll wrap it up here in a nice little bow. But people have a hard time disputing somebody who can put the passion and and reveal their value systems and put a human side to hunting. And when you can when you can do that through storytelling and I think our message becomes stronger. You know, very little of any of the stories that we we hear the most is not always about the killing of game. You know, that's a very small part. That's where the work starts. The story is everything that leads up to that. So we have to be effective storytellers, just like the Navajo, just like the Hebrews, just like the, the, the every ancient culture, you know, just like the family that, that gathers on the front porch and something we have lost in our society is, is being able to tell that story. It's not always about, you know, how much a person can read on Instagram or a Facebook post before they scroll by. That is just um, a very minute part of who we are and what we do. So I think it's important that we, we understand the value of storytelling, the, the importance it plays in, in showcasing who we are and the values that we have. So, Clay, I appreciate your, your time today. Good luck at Bear Hunting Magazine um, and with your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Steve. You're Hello. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Clay, it's been a real privilege to have you with us today. I've enjoyed, I always enjoy your stories. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, my word out there to especially the younger people, uh, what will your story be and how will you tell it, you know? And, and that that's the thing. And uh, it's been great. Uh, I hope we can do it again. Yes. Well, pleasure to be on the Houndsman XP podcast and, um, I, I've, I've always, I was excited when you guys first got going and, uh, and, and I, I think you guys have exceeded, exceeded what I think anybody would have thought that, uh, that you could have done honestly in, uh, in the podcast and how much it's grown. And, uh, and then I'm appreciative of the value system that you guys carry inside of trying to get the message of conservation, but also asking some of the harder questions of the hound world, but also just talking about the tactics and ways and practical applications of just helping hound hunters become better houndsmen. So you guys do a good job of covering all the important things inside of the hound and dog world, you know, from the philosophical to the really functional and practical. And I think that, that shows, uh, insight that's valuable so yeah i appreciate you guys appreciate it very much coming from you clay absolutely yep well steve why don't you wrap this thing up well clay as you may know if you've listened before we have a tradition around here when it's time to turn the dogs loose and i'll just put it simply this way you follow your hound and i'll follow mine